0: Last evening we had the privilege of the performance of Dustin the and our two guests, David and, Andrew, and it was a great pleasure. Today we have the opportunity for a little more extended discussion uh, around the themes that that particular performance and that work raises, and we want to have that opportunity, take that opportunity for a informal discussion this afternoon. These things go where they will folks. We don't really script them. Um, so folks will be able to raise questions that arose in the performance room generally if they didn't make the performance with you, Um, a word or two about each of them. Uh, I relied on Jordan last night to give the full introduction, so I'm sort of trying to catch up. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, Andrew, of course, is the singer of the two in last night's performance and is now in the college, pursuing his master's degree as a West Virginia uh, native, has been away for the last couple of years from his native state. You grew up in Huntington?
1: I grew up in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Nate, Nate is the Nate is Huntington Nate. <laughs> president. Um, and
0: Nate is at Cincinnati Conservatory now, pursuing his master's degree. And they have collaborated on this work and others in the offing, I believe. <laughs> and we're, it's a real pleasure to have you here. The themes that were raised last night were really interesting to us and community voices. Um, we have a sustained interest in social change and community change processes. and. Obviously, those are a great moment now in Appalachia. Um, as Appalachia, as, as one of you remarked last night, um, enters a period of transition. Yeah. Um, and the questions that uh, we dogged the entire region are important ones, um, and I think well worth our exploration. So we'll turn now to questions um, from the floor for our two guests. Well, I have one.
2: Choose this
0: like format of expression, so the opera and
3: the storytelling. It wasn't so much a choice. I think it was um, just kind of the natural outgrowth of um, Andrew being an opera singer and me being a composer. It just kind of um, you know we wanted to collaborate on something, and and this is what made the most sense to collaborate on. So, yeah, it's, it it wasn't like we sat down and we're like okay, what's the best. Format to talk about you know mountaintop removal and prescription drug use opera you know so it, it was just it was just kind of like what what ended up um, happening but it, but I, I like the I like how you know it's it's ended up that it's um, there's been a lot of interest because it's such a weird format for that
1: and and I, and I like that. You know? mm-hmm. I think for me, so when I, I was when I was working in, in West Virginia as a community organizer, like, that was, it, I, of course, it's a very different form of expression uh, and and work than than performance and, and opera. And then when I began thinking about wanting to explore some of these things uh, and through art, and just, like, I, I really appreciate it and find insight in, in other forms, but in terms of, like, what, as Nate said, like, as an opera singer, that's where I feel like I can be most, honest as myself in, in, in these works. So that was what, what was what felt right. What was then a stretch was then that there were all these monologues, which was something that I had not done uh, before. and but I think was then also gave it a, a closer connection to um, reality, reality maybe like, I mean opera has this like kind of heightened reality. Um, and then spoken work, and hopefully bring it also down to, back down to earth in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: I have a question. Yeah. So I'm assuming your background is in opera, and then when you got to Michigan, you be- you went into community organizing. Mm-hmm. How did you find switching back and forth between opera and organizing, mm-hmm. and how did that inform you know this work?
1: Yeah well, so i I went to undergraduate at the University of Michigan and studied voice there with the intent to be an opera singer um, near the end of my time at the University of Michigan I became very concerned about climate change specifically at that point and it was um, it, it, it was something that I'd, I'd always cared about the environment in, in some broad sense but then finding a, a um something that just really lit me on fire and i felt both outraged and passionate about um and through that process i met a number of people that were on speaking tours from west virginia and dealing with the impacts of mountaintop removal coal mining and um, i was working as a grant writer and fundraiser for a uh, organization the student environmental action coalition the year after i would graduated and we um we supported a lot of student organizing that was happening in West Virginia and Kentucky, so I came down and I visited it, and I encountered, I'd never been to West Virginia, this was in 2008, and um, I'd, I'd never been to the, to the coalfields of West Virginia, I'd been to like the the eastern area where, Cranberry it, where Cranberry we were in Cranberry, so we would have gone on a backpacking trip before that. Um, I, the, the, the sense of the connection of, to place and commitment to place and community that I saw there was something that I had kind of upheld as an ideal intellectually before, but I'd never seen or experienced it. And seeing that was something I wanted to be a part of. And I moved there as a full-time uh, volunteer initially with Corver Mountain Watch. Um, and at that point, I was really, I was really in a period of pretty thoroughly rejecting opera and art music. <laughs> something I, I, would, I would talk about at, at, at that point, and I think there's still, there is there's definitely truth in this, was that I, th- I was thinking of art music and, and classical music as, in large part, kind of serving as decoration on oppressive mm-hmm. so, like social order, and that I didn't want to be a part of that. In coming back around to it, the aspect that I really try to dig into and stay true to in being a musician is that it's a... Method of making sense of our world and our reality and our relationships, and it definitely art, music, and opera, like are definitely presented in contexts that are very disconnected from things that are important and community and social justice issues. Um, But I I I hope to be a part of. I, I I hope that my work as a artist can create the space for audiences whether they're seeking out an experience that will connect them to social justice or not seeking that out but that that it will serve serve to connect those things
5: it's almost stealth Stealth. in terms of in terms of the typical opera audience yeah if you think about it yeah
3: Yeah. almost none of our audiences have been typical opera audiences okay um, (laughs) so (laughs) far so far so far yeah we haven't really pursued that that um which which is fun too, you know, um, but, I, but I think something Andrew said reminded me that in some ways we're both kind of estranged from the opera tradition in a lot of ways. My my background is as a jazz pianist. At at the point at that I wrote this um, piece, I had no training in composition, I, um, or I might have had like a few lessons, but but it was I was coming from the perspective of like I like to make music. And then, uh, so it was like, how do I, and I, Andrew wants to make some music with me, so how do I make that happen? And so, it, so I think that's also eliminated a bar- the barrier that might've existed if we would come come at it with the thought like, okay, opera is a thing that happens at the Met, you know? Mm-hmm. We're, gonna, we're gonna try to do that, but on a small scale, we weren't even really thinking in those terms, we were just thinking like, let's try to do this musical thing and, you know, take it on tour, make it, you know, make make it so that lots of audiences can access it, and that it and it came out the way it did. Really, the word opera, we never, we didn't, we only started using that when we realized it was really hard to explain to people what this piece was, because um, we've been calling it um, a staged song cycle and a uh, musical monodrama, um, and we've like used all kinds of terms, and then finally we're like it's really just it's like a little opera so we're just calling it an opera uh, so yeah mm-hmm. would you say that's accurate yeah like, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll add also in coming back to the music world out outside of just work on this piece working as a community organizer I mean, it, it puts you in touch with so like with so many situations that are that have real stakes for people and in a way I think it's it's being intimately involved in the workings of of society and and a lot of opera like deals with deals with important situations situations of outrageous drama where I think if if and I think for for many people there there's not an experience of that or or there's a thought of like oh like these kind of situations happen in history but I mean the world right now is Full of life and death issues, mm-hmm. issues yeah. of justice, issues of power, like power struggles that are very important. And that I think that's something that can be brought to life um, through opera, both with new opera and then reinterpretations of, of old works.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess there's two parts of this that are striking me as I'm listening to the, the aesthetic tradition of opera suits in some ways, you're just arguing, right? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. um, it it has historically dealt with great human questions. Mm-hmm. But in that sense, it's not so far apart from your organizing work. Mm-hmm. It seems to grow from it. And it's a natural place for this kind of um, presentation to happen, mm-hmm. to reach these deeper questions to which you just pointed. And then the second thing, again, I'm making sure I'm understanding you. Um, there's a bit of a contradiction in, the, in what, in expectations, I guess at least, and I'd be interested in, um, the expectation is if you're going to talk about Appalachia, you're going to have a guitar or a banjo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have neither, right. uh, a concert piece was. Um, and you just kinda of fell into that or were you more conscious about that
3: or both, I think. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So there is a banjo behind the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well to respond to your first your first half of that first. Um, I think it's, it's um, opera has um, uh, Andrew could probably speak more to this, but opera definitely has this history of dealing with these large human questions, but it's also kind of from the beginning been very institutionalized um, art, art form, you know, where it was sort of associated with aristocracy from, a, from, from the beginning. And so I think it's, it's taken um, a while for opera to, to, I think probably in the 20th century is when people started realizing that it could be done in ways that weren't, that weren't necessarily um, serving the ends of an institution in particular. And so, um, yeah, that's that kind of dealing with the tradition of opera is dealing with, you know, if you look at opera plots throughout history, it's, it tends to, even when there's like a political message, it tends to be a, a pretty safe one. You know? Well,
1: well can, I, can I counter that? Sure, yeah, am I'm, yeah, I'm yes. going to counter that yeah. before you jump into the, the Appalachian aesthetics mm-hmm. aspect of the question. Right, so I'm, I'm thinking of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, which is as close to outright class revolt as could have been put on a stage in, um, in 1792, or I, I, I think it was, it was based on the Beaumarchais play of, of Figaro um, and Susanna. They are servants in the Count's um, palace um, in, in Seville. And the whole opera is them outwitting the count who wants to sleep with Susanna before uh, the marriage of her marriage with Figaro, and also like the, and the, the character of Susanna is uh, is just as much like the equal protagonist and out smarter as Figaro in this. So there is also this. I, I I mean I don't think Mozart was thinking in terms or, or De Ponte the librettists were thinking in, in terms of like feminism at that time, but there there, there are. Also, like instances of some of the most popular operas and successful operas do like go against the grain of of society uh, or or or, a, or a power at that time, and of course that was also like part of like it, that wasn't happening in a vacuum. It was also part of like the upwelling of of um, thought that was that was leading to, to the French Revolution at the time, mm. and then I mean, and then with with. Very, uh, there's all kinds, uh, all all kinds of political, much much more nationalist. Um, but it was it was definitely part of the power struggle of of Italy becoming a, a nation state and no longer the the, the papacy and all all the, the multiple little mm-hmm. kingdoms and, and duchies. Which also then then you I I'm sure there are scholars that, that know much more about this than I do that can then talk about how that also was probably serving. Um, like power structures that maybe were, were divorced from like the interests of, of the common people at that time um so i think i think there is a liberatory strand in opera and then in the works that it's not the most explicit I'm, now i'm thinking i'm thinking of don carlo as a grand opera of, um of verity it's about power struggles mostly within a royal family and love triangles of course because it's opera um, but you, you have you have the grand Inquisitor it's, it takes place during the the, the Spanish Inquisition and it, he's basically leading this surveillance state of um, repression that, that even lords over over um, the royalty at the time and then you have the royalty making all these decisions that um, are about political revolt happening in one of the one of the provinces of the kingdom and while that's not usually it's not staged in a way that really shows how those decisions play out in the lives of people but i think there is possibility and potential in showing how like the decisions of power holders both affect people and then how also like people with in positions of power are then forced to make decisions based on the collective action of oppressed peoples. Mm. So I, I, I think there's there is a liberatory strand and, and in, when there's not it can be inserted in a mm. in a way that is powerful. Yeah. Well
5: would Porgy and invest be an opera or is it something less than it
1: is an opera, yeah, yeah. that's what yeah, I thought. So yeah. I mean that's mm-hmm.
5: certainly more mm-hmm. vernacular than yeah mm-hmm. than and, and certainly not about
3: mm-hmm. right. I mean there's there's a lot of, you know, controversy around Por- Porgy and invest too and the and the approach that um, Gershwin and Du Hayward, I think, that was the librettist, That their kind of approach to that material and and the uh, the approach to the population that they were depicting and and their singers. Right. So I mean, it's not a, it's not exactly right. R- yeah, but yeah.
5: what struck me about this is that it's not there, there no it's not the conventional love story. It's the love of family and love of place mm-hmm. as opposed to romantic love, which is Mm-hmm. Soften so them,
3: right and there's yeah there's kind of a. I'm trying to think if you could read a love triangle into Dust in the Final yeah. too I mean <laughs> if you think about place and, and Michael's that's, that's his character's name is you know he feels like he's feeling this pull from home and then he's feeling like he where he really you know has made himself belong is, is back in you know in Iowa and so and there's this pulls from different directions I don't know but yeah.
0: For those of us who missed the opera, hmm. can you give us the one-minute version on your protagonist and antagonist and sure. storyline?
3: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you want to do that? Oh, no, okay. No <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Andrew's character is a uh, a computer programmer who uh, has moved away from West Virginia, where he grew up, and he left for college, and he's never looked back in ten years. And now his um, sister has gone into a coma as a result of an overdose on prescription drugs, um, precipitated by her family's displacement from their, uh, from their land due to mountaintop removal mining. And so the entire opera takes place when Andrew's character, Michael, is back in West Virginia, um, dealing with the possibility of his sister's death, because um, she's, she's still in this coma. And also dealing with the changes in the in the landscape and in his familial home.
0: Is there an antagonist?
3: No, I mean not a, not a personified one. Yeah. <laughs> the minor, the minor. yeah, I mean it's 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 yeah, it's it's sort of it's more of a, an inner inner struggle, I think. Yeah. yeah.
2: I have a question. I'm gonna try to articulate it. So just be patient with <laughs> <Is> me. <anything laughs> like um, so I have this kind of a shift of direction, but in. Um, I was interested because your work addresses both environmental and social problems. And I, I was listening to Andrew's story in regards to being part of um, power shift and these larger movements against, um, you know, climate change. And and in my work, I've started reading more and more understanding about how the larger environmental movement is. It, Classes, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, like largely a white movement, and I, I know that for me, once I went from being part of that movement into much more a more complex place, let's say, like West Virginia, mm-hmm. or yeah. in my own work with um, uh, labor and agriculture, I find it be so hard to have that balance between environment. Environmental goals that I have, as well as understanding the social complexities on the ground in the yeah. place. So I have two questions. My first question is, how do you, how have you evolved, and how do you see yourself now in regards to those two mm-hmm. very complex, um, sometimes polarized sorts of issues? And how do you see your work involved in larger social movements?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I'll take a stab at that. Yeah. Okay. So, I I think. My 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 thinking around uh, environmental activism and then moving to environmental justice work it, it really it really changed around the time I was moving to West Virginia and um, I think I, really the over over and and it changed during my time in West Virginia like when I first moved there I was with for Mountain Watch and there. Main strategy and tactics were to make mountaintop removal a national issue, with attention to polarize, um, because there, the idea being if people know about this, they'll know it's wrong, and we'll be able to stop it. Um, and then, and, and and that was that was kind of the, the strategy that I was operating on for a while. So I, I was working with people to create protests, from like small protests in the coal fields to larger actions in Washington, D.C., and then um, a large mobilization, the march on Blair Mountain, which was uh, a march through West Virginia with about 500 people opposing mountaintop removal. Um, And I think that that activism was valid and and kind of like part of a a strategy around stopping mountaintop removal, but it was very much, I, I don't think you make that many claims of it being impactful beyond that single goal. And I think to speak to like what you were saying about the, um, and, and, and then and there was all, also like all kinds of, I mean like the stakes for me as a person working on Mount Hopper were totally different than the stakes for anyone who was from there working on Mount Hopper And that's like an issue of class and, and privilege and relationship to the place and, and the community there that I can say like, I'm gonna choose to move here and I'm gonna work here. And then three years later, when I realized, oh my gosh, I really want to be a singer again, I'm, I can then choose to leave, which is, that's something I'm like, I still need to unpack more than mm-hmm. I, I have. Um, but in the, the last three years, I was there and doing more, I think, traditional community organizing work and then also looking at um, issues of land ownership. So the fact that most of that the coal field is owned by outside land-holding companies that then lease to the coal companies... So there's no, inst- there's very, very little institutional decision-making power in local communities for what happens there in terms of the economy. And that seems to me to be like the crux of all of it, where, where it's, I mean, if, if I have an operating theory now for like what is important in social change and that encompassing like relationship to environment and, and places that the people who are, most affected by the decisions of what is done with a place should be the decision makers themselves, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. it. Couldn't be further from that. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the what is the reality is in West Virginia right now? So, thinking right now, I, I'm I'm not. This is the most engaged I've been with this place or this issue mm-hmm. since since I, I left, and I've been in this little tunnel of focusing on releasing my tongue and being better <laughs> on being, being just really working on my craft so yeah. I can be the best. Um, singer I can be um, both for pieces like this and for, for the, the, the whole breadth of the repertoire. Um, but over the long term, that, that issue of land ownership is one that I really want to work on and find a way to do that. Maybe not as a person who lives in Appalachia, but working with people who do live there and are committed to it for the, for the long term to funnel resources of the largely privileged and economic, economically privileged communities that I'll be in touch with as an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Um to support work that happens there related to changing that the pattern of land ownership, which is again that's been the pattern of land ownership for more than a hundred years. So it's going to take time <laughs> to to do that. So I and I, I hope that's something that that I'll be able to usefully contribute to in the in the future.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah inspiring to hear him talk Um, (laughs) uh, I I just want to add I think we're we're both coming from a place of uh, having this this Ann Arbor West Virginia kind of dichotomy in our in our lives and what it means to be an environmentalist in Ann Arbor versus what it means to be an environmentalist in West Virginia I think exactly you know illustrates what you're talking about because in Ann Arbor it's like you know you you recycle and you compost and you and you like Make sure you're, you know, you're not using like uh invasive plants in your yard, and and then in in uh in West Virginia it's like you're basically fighting for your life, and you're an environmentalist. I mean, you know, a, a lot of people are are in that situation, and so I met so when I moved back to West Virginia. I lived in the in in the the town the town where Andrew had been living, which is what Fayetteville, yeah, and um. That's when I started to meet people who were like this, and especially when the water crisis hit in uh, in January of 2014, um, I started getting involved in that and seeing, um, through that, meeting a lot of people who were basically, had been disenfranchised by the industries in general and uh, public works as well in, the, in that in that case, because you had 300,000 people on the same water supply, which was because of a bunch of um consolidation that had occurred after after the coal mines had been poisoning the groundwater. and so it was it, you know you have a lot of people who are um, angry at the situation that they're in and um, and they might have you know they might have conservative social values, but they're starting to see themselves as part of this uh, s- system of uh, economic Oppression which is affecting them in, in this very individual way like you meet people who are in the Sierra Club because their house Flooded and there was no way to fight the fight the industry and they're like that that is wrong and This is the larger movement. That's addressing that so it's it's yeah, it's just very different different worlds. I think
5: yeah. And in Ann Arbor you would never be told to choose between your health and a job Uh uh-huh. yeah. Right, yeah or the, or the health of your environment and and job,
3: right. uh, yeah, and that is one of the things that makes it really complex being in West Virginia because you're, you know, when you talk about the coal industry, you're talking about, you know, the livelihoods of so many people and and the and, decades of, of prideful hard work, you know, um, and,
5: and yet the coal industry only, I mean, the coal industry hires fewer people than Walmart in West Virginia, right. Of the mechanization and the breaking of the unions. And right. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. So. Um, so it's almost a faux job. Uh, I, I mean, it's not, the impl- it's not the employer that it pretends to be. And right. They cast um, aspersions on outside enemies that are killing the coal industry.
3: Oh yeah. Oh no. They have incredibly uh, effective PR, you know, and uh, campaigns and. Um, but, but, I mean, they, they are still a, a significant employer, you know. Um, and so, you know, Walmart is, like, a very, very significant employer. But, but the coal industry is, and the industry surrounding it, um, you know, all the, the chemicals that have to go into the processing of the coal. And, like, there's just, it's, I think, that the kind of the Ann Arbor mindset is, oh, great, we can just, like, end coal and everything will be okay. And then the West Virginia environmentalist mindset is, like, if that happened, then like my neighbor over here would, you know, would be without a, a livelihood, and a lot would, would need to happen to address that. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, it's also the part of the, the the tax the tax base. So like, what and what can provide the the social services that are, that are there? I, I was uh, just I was talking with a friend of mine who's from Logan, West Virginia, briefly when um, this weekend I stopped at the, uh, the Appalachian Studies Association conference. Um, mainly to re- re- reconnect with people I hadn't seen in about um, two years, and I was talking with him, and he was saying his mom works as a, as a teacher in the Logan public schools, and they've rehired all of the teachers as AmeriCorps um, mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a, like basic contracts that are through AmeriCorps. I don't know exactly. This this is this is now like here, hearsay to some extent, but th- but in a way to save money because there's not money coming in through the coal, the, the mm-hmm. coal severance taxes. Um, to the same extent that there was, which is, again, it's like, well, hopefully there is good in there being less coal mining over the long term, but, again, it's this painful process and then how do we, I I think that that's what's so important about the, I I think last night we were saying that what we hope to get out of performing this, this piece there and to just, uh, to create a more empathetic relationship to Appalachian to the coalfields, so that there is a willingness to um, support that that transition and uh, a mindfulness of what life is there and uh, both like the really wonderful things about life in mm-hmm. Central Appalachia and the and the real hardships of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um,
3: I wanted to touch on your experience, Andrew, as like a community organizer. Um, so I guess in these like small communities of coal mine, do you feel like these workers I guess have a lack of voice and like, how so? And also, as you, through your experience, have you are there other like social injustices you guys have like witnessed or wanted to like touch on
5: and um, you mentioned land ownership earlier. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh like? um, well, so Also, so can you, can you restate like the first the just the, the first, first part of your question? Yeah. Okay.
3: Um, in these uh, communities, specifically in relation to history in West Virginia, do you feel they have
5: like a lack of voice, and like how is that transcended to their
3: social situation? I guess? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I think maybe to, you know, to to get back to the idea that there's not that we we our, 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 right now our politics don't have good ways for people to make collective decisions about natural resources especially in like these rural areas where there's um, they're unincorporated so there's there's not a like a town government there it's the county government or the state government or the federal government or the private landholders who are mainly not in in that in the community so the, the yeah, certainly like there's a lack of like ability to make the real decisions about what happens to the place um, and then, and then I, everyone is different though in, in, in terms of the, the degree to which they make their, their voice heard just by like speaking their mind and whether it's through an organization, uh, whether it's someone that decides I want to like the, 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 I come to a, a lobbying event in DC with me that will we'll get a band together and we'll go to DC to, to lobby for um, investment in economic transition or ending mountaintop removal. Or I mean, a lot of people also make their voices heard when they came out to counter-protest at, at protests that we would organize. So like, minors who were rightfully upset that we were protesting mm-hmm. their way of making a living. And um, so I mean, everyone makes their voice heard in, in different ways. But I think the, the place that there's a lack, there's a lack of an ability to really have the decision-making power. Um, And then the the second part of your question, like there's, the um, I I think I would especially like I, the, I I haven't worked on on social justice issues in, in in a real way since leaving West Virginia. But I think in the like in the last two years, seeing the rise of Black Lives Matter activism has been a really um, inspiring thing to to see happening. I say like see happening because it's not something that I've been directly involved with, it, except for showing up to a couple of like larger protest events in New York City. And then it's, it's been interesting being outside the, 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 it, it, it's, it, I've almost had culture shock leaving um, West Virginia and leaving like activist communities and coming back into like the uh, into like the American like mainstream to some degree. And I think, actually, even calling it the American mainstream is a little bit misleading, but, like, what presents itself as, like, the American mainstream is, like, upper-middle classish, mostly white spaces, um, and that I am now living in as, as a musician. And something I'm, like, strolling with is, like, how do I, just in the course of my day-to-day life, communicate with people in a way that, like, communicates the importance of Black Lives Matters activism, or how can I really communicate to someone what, what the situation is in, in Southern Appalachia? Or mm-hmm. So th- those are things that I struggle with now that I don't, I'm not thinking of myself as an organizer, but like we're all political actors in our day-to-day lives, so how do we do that and consciously, but also consciously while not driving ourselves crazy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just move our, all of our conversations in a better direction.
5: you developed the music sure. that went with this. I mean, yeah. it, When people think in terms of Appalachian music, they don't mm-hmm. tend, as Max noted, right. to think in terms of a concert piano yeah. and an operatic voice. And they may actually expect to hear similar to what Copland did in his mm-hmm. pieces, where he would weave through um, folk music and hymns and things like that. But there wasn't a very strong sense of that in your work. Right. So I was curious about how you how you, uh, built it to develop it musically mm-hmm.
3: to convey yeah. the things that you wanted to convey. Right. Well, since you brought up Copeland, of course, there's the um, example of Appalachian Spring, which right. everyone uh, um, you know is kind of the most famous musical symbol of Appalachia. Mm-hmm. But um, the history behind that title is is pretty interesting because uh, so he wrote he wrote the entire piece and he called it Ballet for Martha. It was this collaboration with Martha Graham, and then he was on a plane with Martha Graham and he was like, Hey Martha, do you have a title for your ballet? And she was like, Yeah, I think I'm gonna call it Appalachian Spring. And he was like, Oh, really interesting. Like, why are you gonna do that? She's like, Oh, it's this line in this poem that I really like. That was that was the relationship wow. between <laughs> "Peace, Appalachian <laughs> Spring," and Appalachia. There's absolutely no relationship. It's whatsoever. crazy how much we infer. On yeah, that exactly. Because <laughs> because then for the rest of his life, people com- would come up to him and be like, "I, I like hear Appalachia in this piece. Like you did such a great job evoking it." And he wasn't he he wasn't evoking anything. It was it was. I mean, I can see how his his music can be construed as very much about landscape because there's. There's this spatiality, and and then and then the you know the folk songs. I think it, yeah, so, but it was a, you know a shaker folk song in that in that instance, and so um, yeah, I, I my approach, again, sort of determined by, um, by, the, just the realities of the situations. Like, I don't I don't personally play banjo or mandolin. Um, I play piano, and and. Um,
1: and you're from West Virginia yeah, right and
3: and so and so it, then it, there was that process of s- sitting down and realizing that that's legitimate. like the fact that that I'm from West Virginia and I play piano, it's not like you know it's not an aberration, it's not something to be uh, to be like kind of swept into a corner. It's like something that that is my true experience, and I'm just willing to reflect that as it is and then there there's also the I, I like that people come to this expecting some reference to folkways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like also disappointing them um, <laughs> because it's, I think it's a, it's a good exercise in expanding people's notions right. of what uh, Appalachian culture is or can be. Because it's been, um, while Appalachian culture has these incredible folkways and, and traditions um, mm-hmm. that have been Really, mind, and there's all kinds of associations with that word, but it's, but that's kind of the process that's sometimes used for these for these associations. It's like, okay, I want to, you know, if you talk to any, um, you know, like the producers of of Buckwild, for instance, it's like they knew that they were shooting in West Virginia. They probably didn't hire any West Virginian musician, like composers, to write the music, but whoever was sitting in their studio you know, soundtracking the the show, like they had to get out their banjo and, you know, in order to have this association with sound in place. Um, so I like, I like to challenge that. Um, and in the, in this my most recent piece, so this, this was, I wrote it like three years ago. So my, um, approach has changed a lot compositionally, but in my most recent piece, which is about the urban Appalachian uh, population in Cincinnati, I actually do have a banjo and, um, it's sitting out on a table and percussionists are playing it with pencils. Um, And so uh, it's, I I wanted to make that, again, I wanted to make that statement like, you came expecting a banjo, there's your banjo. (laughs) And um, so, so uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of that process of challenging people's um, neat packages that they put Appalachian culture in that, that, you know, that I'm interested in.
5: Can
3: you talk about the um, relationship in terms of how you developed the music and sure. the libretto? Yeah, so and, and what was the, other the music and the libretto, the relationship. Oh. Um, I had the advantage of uh, being my own collaborator, um, which was the advantage of that is that I could um, I could I could go back and forth between directionality of the of the process. So I could. For some of the, of the pieces, I wrote the text first. So the one where he's listing the, the things that he's seen on a hillside, I just kind of wrote out a list of things and then I figured out how to make it work for music. Um, but then I could also turn around and write some music and then say what text would fit into this. So at and the last, uh, uh, basically m- most of the, the last movement, but especially the, the kind of chorus, um, then I, can, I, I wrote the melody and then I thought, okay, what text would make sense um, given this melody? And so that actually, I found out that that generated some of the more interesting words was when I would go in that direction, start with the music. Um, but yeah, so, it, so we definitely started with the, with the subjects and with the angles and the characters and the, and the issues um, and the plot. But then from, then from then on it was kind of this back and forth between the music and the, and the text. Um, is any of this all
4: about from your own
3: experience? Or like how did you develop your character? Well, to some extent it is because I think um, the, the, the similar question was asked, well I don't remember what the question was last night, but I, but I pointed out that, oh yeah, it was asked why I didn't write it from the addict's point of view. Um, Oh, actually, were were you the one that asked that? Okay, that was you, yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, okay, it's all coming around. Um, Yeah, and again, I was writing what I know to to some extent, and so um, my experience of leaving the state and coming back um, is autobiographical, and I had to try to come from that place and extend it to a character who was fictional. And so I I I knew that making a huge jump would be really difficult for me creatively because again I'm not you know I I haven't like spent my life developing my art as a fiction writer, Um, so I wanted to kind of write something that was that was I was actually capable of 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 writing. So that's why I kind of started with with something relatively close to my story. Although, and that's that's also why the you know the character is not particularly. Economically disadvantaged and in this case, um, ag- again, it would have been a, a great opportunity to uh, you know represent a character who came from like a, a very working class background, but I didn't feel like I could really do that justice without making a bunch of assumptions and so the character was you know like middle class he uh, spoke with a you know, with a pretty um, I would say generic accent because uh, he left the, the place and like deleted his accent. Um, so, so there were all these aspects of, well, that, not that one in particular, but there were all these aspects of autobiography that allowed me to approach the piece in the first place. Does that answer your question?
4: Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm kind of interested in And there were some parts that were fuzzy when I was watching this last night. Mm -hmm. The character comes back to back home, but they did not come from a working class family originally? Mm -hmm. Okay. And why did you choose to... like when the character starts talking about um, the land and the changes, and at one point he mentions how he was able to um, get away from his circumstance. And, you know, when he left, he never came back. And so he almost sounds like he's speaking from his privilege at that point. But then he also kind of, you can tell that he has this longing for Mm home that he remembered.
1: Yeah. <laughs> then, yeah, absolutely. In talking about, we thought like he kind of like comes to a point of making a decision about what does he want his relationship to the place and his family to be, but we don't depict what that is. And I think would you say that's like partially for like then like the audience to infer and make make their own story from there. So, but yeah, that, I, so. I feel like you just like yeah nailed what what it is I was trying to to depict in my, in my characterization. Right. I think there's, um, there's, there's a little bit of a
3: sense of, of, you know, superiority complex a little bit from like I escaped. And so he's, that's why he, you know, he, like you said, he's sort of um, abandoning his family and he, he doesn't really for 10 years, he just like has no interest in going back. And to him, he's ascended beyond those, those conditions. Um, and
5: Even if her sister gets badly burned, he, he hasn't come back.
3: Right. Well, that, that might have happened, I think that happened while he was still at home. Um, oh. Because the, 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 the incident that led to her addiction happened while she was
1: in high school. Um,
5: okay. And I got a little bit confused once Andrew said that he was the older brother. I didn't know whether he was out of the picture. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. I think of myself as having been home. There, okay. But it was like okay. late high school for me. Okay. Right. Yeah.
3: Um yeah, so, so there's this this sense of like having ascended beyond the beyond the conditions and then having to like sort of lower himself back into it for this for this family event and then coming to it with that mindset and then being changed by what, what he's what he's experiencing, I guess. Can you
0: go back? I mean sociologically. Uh, lay aside the question mm. whether or not he felt privileged or mm-hmm. hoy-toy or whatever. Um, if you go away, you're educated. What's the process. Do you go back to a community from which you came in this way? Will you be accepted? Mm. Can you be accepted? You're changed, presumably, by the experiences that you had.
5: That makes an assumption, by the way, that everybody who's educated left, and that's not true. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, that's a thought, too. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really important piece of this place-attachment question that Andrew raised earlier. Um, There are people who leave the Privilege in that, except, you know, I, I, I earned my way or I found a way, I got a college education and I yeah. left. Um, and the particular drama here, it seems to me, that it's happening on multiple levels, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it's probably not Because it was different now. Yeah. Just as mm-hmm. likely as him not accepting the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that many times, which is why I'm asking. Mm-hmm. People in this scenario, when they left for whatever reason, the community that had been harmed in, they weren't accepted back when they did come. Yeah. Again, but they came back with an open heart, and mm-hmm. really interested in staying and, uh, and rekindling their place mm-hmm. in that community, they weren't accepted back yet.
1: Yeah, be Well, I mean, I... I th- so, I mean, I I I'll, I'll, I can share like what I think happens when I think of like the, the character I'm, who I'm trying to portray. Him. Like I, I don't think he stays after. I mean I think like he he goes back to, to his, his work. Um, that's I, not, I haven't. I haven't uh, what's that? It's not. That's not that's the authorized. N- that's interpretation. not the authorized. This, <laughs> this, this is my interpretation. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't have an answer as to whether or not Stephanie comes out of her coma or, or, or dies. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, there, there's this sense of like, he wasn't, he wasn't there for the real hardships and then like shows up when mm-hmm. it's just like at the edge or off the edge of the cliff already. And yeah. so, I mean, I, I don't think the character, I, I I don't think of the character as, like, a really, like, I think most more of, like, an anti-hero in a way. Like, like, he's not really, like, a model for, like, what I would, like, hope that people would have as, like, their connection to a, to a place or a community. But I think it is a real... I mean like it, it's it's how a lot of people do relate to a home place if they have some feelings of, like, shame in, in, their, in their relationship to it. Even though that's, like that shame is like put on it and it's not necessarily something, it's not a bad place that he's coming from, but it's a place that is thought of as backwards by the rest of the, the country.
3: Yeah. I come, come to think of it in the entire, um, opera, I'm trying to think of an instance where Michael interacts with anyone besides his immediately family. Uh, well, I mean, he's, so he's with his sister, who's in a coma, he's with his mom and his dad. Um, and, that you know he's reading from the cards he's reading about all these interactions that are happening you know all of his his sister's strong relationship with the community but he doesn't really he doesn't really find out if he would be accepted or not and so there's the you know there's the possibility that the prodigal son you know scenario would would happen and and they would just you know welcome him, him back and and that would be it but but you don't really know how he would he would um he would fare, or how he would reintegrate. Yeah, I think there was something over here. I,
5: well, well, when I was thinking what he was saying, I was trying to square what he said in his mind with the people I know who are mm-hmm. in the region, who are from the region. And so if we're talking about people at college, as opposed to people who, who didn't, didn't would be Judy Bonds or Maria mm-hmm. or Larry, or mm-hmm. those people. but Paul Corbett Brown, mm-hmm. Wendy Johnson, mm-hmm. Rachel yeah. Parsons, I mean, the next generation that's yeah. coming back. That's a very different...
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there, there's a way of, I mean, like, people who go away to get an education to, in with the intent of coming back and mm-hmm. bringing what they learn and the skills that they gain and the relationships that they gain back to the region, yeah. which I think is a really admirable thing. Yeah. Um, and then there's, like, the, I'm going to see, like, the character, like, I'm going to try to get, I'm going to try to get out. I'm going to try to... Yeah. There's nothing for me here, why would I stay here? Kind of thing, which is I think where, where that where he was coming from more.
3: I think it's probably about about your attitude to when you return. You know, if like and then that was pointed out to me by in regards to the insider outsider um, question among, you know, local people, there's this there's this sense that that residents of rural areas don't trust outsiders and what i was told by by a, a friend who's a who's also an organizer who's from new york and is and he you know he he was he he said that he as long as he makes clear his, his sincere interest and the and his willingness to um adapt his agenda to the agenda of the people who he's supposedly representing then people are very accepting. It's, it's not a matter that he's an outsider. You know, it's, a, it's just a matter of is he representing outside interests? And I think that's probably the same kind of relationship with people who go out um, and get an education, you know, coming back. They might need to kind of prove that they're not, they're not like hoity-toity, um, but at, at the point where they're genuinely interested in reintegrating with the community, I would imagine that that integration probably happens pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, That's the last question. Okay. The last question? Okay. Well um Thanks for coming. Yes, thank you. I was I'm curious
2: um to question over to the um drug um portion of the of your um show. So there's definitely been as we were speaking up earlier, the concerted effort to decrease not health removal through activating mm-hmm. which is definitely you know the a form of structural violence has there been a similar sort of movement to raise awareness about um, drug problems in Appalachia mm-hmm. and also has there been a movement to unveil the structural violence associated with mm-hmm. that because it can be seen as a um, you know, blame the victim, all those sorts of, um, I guess you could say, like, um, sorts of narrative around or rhetoric around drug addiction in our country. And so, is is, is there a similar movement towards that? Because I Mm -hmm. think it's very interesting because there's land and people and all those questions.
3: um, (laughs) Yeah, and that, well, there's a a strong correlation too between um, areas of Mining, I think, especially mountaintop removal mining, and these the uh, addiction to, to pills. There's like if you look at a map, there you kind of overlay them, um, and I don't I I'm you know have some ideas as to the connections, but at least there's a correlation, mm-hmm. um, and then in terms of activism in response to that, for one thing, it's a it's a it's a newer um, specifically opiate addiction through Oxycon- Oxycon was introduced, I think, in the mid-90s, and that's when, because it was, uh, it was a lot, it was pure oxycodone, I think, and there was no, it wasn't, uh, it, it was possible to get a, a, a pure dose because they believed that their time release, well, they said they believed that their time release uh, coating was, was, you know, impenetrable, but then people found out that you crush it up in a bill and you get it wet with spit and you know the, the, the whole thing that he explained how to do, um, and so it's that when that happened, that's when that's when the opioid addiction really um, skyrocketed, and so it's it's an, it's a newer issue. Um, I think there are, there are lots of public health people looking for ways of addressing it, um, and but I haven't seen a lot of like activism around it because. I mean, for one thing it's a it's a I guess this it's a slightly different battle. Um but I don't know, maybe maybe the activism that's happening just isn't happening
1: in the same circles that I'm aware of. Yeah. Well hey, it, 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 it it's, it's less visible. It's like they're right. I mean, there, there are bills up in the state house every year to deal to like for more investment for rehab or mm-hmm. or for decriminalizing things. So so I think it's something that because it's, everyone can agree that addiction is a bad thing, yeah. and then there are different perspectives about how do you deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there is, there's more like a consensus around this is something that we want to move through, whereas like with co it's like, it's, it's a very different thing where it's like, we you know, we need to keep on mining and keep on mining and keep on mining, or, and, and, and then all the Really, is between that and and coal. Um, So, but so so, and I think it then it also doesn't fit into like the the narratives of social change kind of movements that Mm -hmm. in the same way that like say like anti mountaintop Mm -hmm. removal movement tries to like and and um, talk about itself as a social movement. Whereas there are probably a lot more people engaged in like dealing with addiction on a daily basis and it's probably much more intertwined with everyone's daily life than like than struggling against mountaintop removal but it's like i think you know the 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 loudest forms of social change are just the loudest forms of social change They're, they're they're not necessarily the where like everyone is focused all the time and maybe that's also why they're the loudest because they're like hey, look, we need to deal with this thing. You're not paying attention. So, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Thank you both very much. Greg. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Trustees Without Borders, a podcast program about people building community and relationships for change. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. TWB is a program of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. You can find more Trustees Without Borders podcasts on the website of IPG at www.ipg.vt.edu. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, remember that building community begins with us and our relationships for change.